Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the September edition of the Fantasy Group. In our continuing to come back to the classics, we are discussing Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. And as I was reading this book, it occurred to me that it, of course, is a classic of the genre, but I couldn't figure out what exactly makes it a classic. Um, maybe somebody else will have an idea. Let's face it, it's the Disney movie that made it a classic, the old 1950s. Because all of the versions that I read were back then, little golden books and miniaturized versions. They didn't have nearly as much stuff as this book did. And I really do think that now I, what made it so popular up till the 50, early 50s, I don't know. Maybe because kids didn't have anything. It was so different from what people read. We have to remember, we take fantasy as a as a given but I don't think they did back then in the Victorian day I think that's why he had to make it so silly because Victorians kind of had to have things they were in the science was growing medical improvements and a lot of things Darwin and and uh, some of the other discoveries that were being made and science was the thing and so if you went fantasy you had to go a little loopy Oh, I'm not sure that's why he made it so loopy. I think he made it loopy because um, he was... um, I remember... Who was it that told me this? I don't know. I think I read it in college or something. That Lewis Carroll was a drug addict. And part of the whole whole bit about the, the mushrooms and the, the, the drink and the so forth is, is part of his, um, you know, even though it was back in the, uh, Victorian <sighs> era, it was, um, um, you know, that, that, uh, since he, he was, I think it was opium that he took, or maybe something else, but, um, that's what I remember from college, I think. Yeah, there were a lot of what they called opium eaters back then. And there was also something called laudanum, which I'm not quite sure it is, but in all the Victorian novels, somebody gives somebody laudanum to make them go to sleep, either for good reasons to help them recover or for bad reasons to dope them out. But laudanum was the thing back then. And if you remember, Sherlock Holmes was a coke addict. Uh, so um, even though you know he condemned uh, the, uh, the opium dens, he was a coke user. Right. I do remember that. Yeah, I do. Um, huh. Well, laudanum is uh, sort of like the old paragoric. I mean, I remember once or twice having paragoric as a child, but, uh, um, you know, it was, it was, uh, um, you know, it was, it was, uh, what do you call it? Opium? Well, not opium, but it was a it was a sedative that was used for kids, and they mixed it with milk or whatever they did, and and um, you know it was supposed to be what people took if they needed to relax or whatever, you know, if they needed a sedative. But I don't know much about it. I suppose we could look it up. I know there were some. There were some. There were some scandals in Victorian England about how nurses would give uh, little babies uh, laudanum to help them sleep. And of course, you know those babies had to grow up addicted without having made it 
having made a choice about it. Wow, that's pretty horrible. I think they le- used gin also. Well, that could be. I I don't know, but uh, you know, it's no worse than uh, babies that are born these days who are, um, you know, whose whose parents were drug addicts and are are born addicted to whatever. You know, the parents are taking. Um, it's really a shame, but it, it does happen. It absolutely does. But um, Lewis Carroll was not, um, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't writing his fantasy to mimic, um, you know, the old, the old sagas, which is what Tolkien was doing. His thing was more sort of like a fairy tale, um, but uh, what would have been in his day, a modern-day fairy tale. And, um, you know, it, it, uh, it doesn't have the same characteristics of Tolkien. And yet, at the same time, it's, it's, um, it's fantastic. It's, it's fantasy. Um, because after all, I mean, you know, you know, it's, it's, uh, (laughs) um, but it's a, it's, it's kind of a, um, I mean, I, I read it and I finished it up today and, um, it just struck me as being not so much, um, fantasy in the sense of, Elves and witches and all that kind of stuff, but a bending of reality, a bending of of perception, um, which I really liked. Kind of, it was it was different to read something like that. And supposedly, um, this is Alice's dream and what she dreams about and so forth. And um, it was it was just kind of interesting. I I enjoyed rereading it. I I hadn't read it in a, a long long time. The dream aspect comes in that that she doesn't question the the bizarreness of the things. Okay, she's in this strange. She fell all this time and didn't get hurt, and she suddenly took this drink and got real small, and then she took another drink and got real big, and hear all these talking animals, and she just goes along with it. You know, she's not worried about how to get back home. When they did the PBS version back in the 90s, I remember feeling so disoriented when I watched the show. I I could not put my... We talk a lot about the fantasy novels we read, keeping your feet on the ground. And, of course, they're not doing at all the same thing that he was doing. He was doing something completely different. But it, it is... To, I find it very disturbing and very unsettling in, in a mobility sense because I always have to know where I am. And I think that that sense of lack of direction is very bothersome to me. So did you have that problem with the book or just the PBS version of it? I didn't have the problem when I was little, but those weren't as detailed. Uh, not as much of a problem with the book. I think it was more remembering how unsettled I was of, with the PBS movie. And so when I read the book, I just kind of was on guard against it. It was just, there were some sort of prickles that came up about it. Yeah, but the PBS movie was probably more like the uh, 
you know, the Disney film that was that was mostly visual. So if you were blind at the time, you know, I don't know how long you've been blind, but if you were blind at the time, um, you know, all of that would have just simply passed you by. And no wonder it was disorienting, because it is a very visual sort of story. Um, you know, it, it, it all has to do with the appearance of stuff, how things look, you know, the, the, the kitchen, you know, in the, in the little house is a kitchen, but it's, um, the appearance is odd because the cook keeps throwing things and the baby keeps sneezing and the, you know, and the, and the, uh, the mother you know, tries to comfort it, but she's actually shaking the baby, which I thought was, um, boy, <laughs> you'd be, you'd be, uh, sent away for life if you really did that to your kid, uh, these days, but, um, you know, it, it just, but it, it's, the, the kitchen scene is, is real in that sense, but it's slightly skewed. It's like, it's sort of, well, I guess it's surrealistic. It's, it's above reality. Um, does, that, does that make sense? But the, but the book at least is a little clearer about its descriptions. And so, you know, if you read the book instead of seeing the movie... Um, because I would, I haven't seen the PBS version of Alice in Wonderland, but I would imagine that it's very visual. Actually, there was quite a bit of dialogue in it, but of course, I didn't get the get in on how weird things looked. You know, I knew there were talking animals, and and she talked, and it, it's more this sense of where she was, and now she's little, and now she's big, and where is she going, and what is her purpose? And I was trying to make sense out of it. And one thing about it, when I read the book, I realized from the beginning, don't try to make sense out of this because it doesn't make sense. Just read it for what's in it. And I think that was a little bit helpful. But it was a, a sense of disorientation uh, that didn't have anything to do with the visual because was, there was enough dialogue that you could follow the movie if anybody could follow this story. Okay, well, um, I think I remember seeing the, the uh, uh, Disney version at some point, but um, it's been so long. I mean, you know, because um, most of my experience with Alice in Wonderland happened either in college or, um, you know, when I was a kid. I know it was read to me when I was a kid, I think. Um, but I, I don't remember reading it myself as a kid, either as a talking book or in Braille. Um, I think somebody read it to me. And, but I'm not sure. I, <laughs> it's so long way back. When you're about five or six, you don't worry about anything making sense. And I, I had had the book read to me quite a few times because I say there were a lot of little abbreviated versions floating around. They didn't have a lot of the things that uh, that they do here. And then, of course, in the music, there was a movie, there was the music. You know, we're painting the roses red and the unbirthday party, happy unbirthday to you, that kind of thing. And so there was, um, the songs were a lot of the, the spirit and what kept you going with the movie. Right, right. Um, 
Well, that's for sure. Um, and I do remember, I do remember my father quoting from Alice in Wonderland and through the Looking Glass, and and you know his his. <laughs> At one point, um, you know, making soup for lunch and 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 serving it up and saying, "Beautiful soup, beautiful soup," you know. <laughs> but my father was like that. I mean, he was, you know, he was he was funny that way. But uh, um, and then, you know, uh, at some point reciting the the jabberwock um but uh yeah you know because these these things have have um become such classics um and in fact they're part of um you know they're part of of normal speech these days and it was interesting to listen to the introduction because that's exactly what the the person said who introduced the story that it has become so part of our culture that we automatically recognize references. You know, we we talk about a Cheshire cat, and we talk about somebody grinning as wide as a Cheshire cat, and we talk about, um, you know, oh, um, just other things but I mean you know so many of these images are, are just so ingrained in our culture I mean the, the queens saying off with their heads off with their heads you know and uh, um, but nothing really ever happens nobody is ever really executed it's it's more of a um, an exclamation because nothing nobody actually dies in this thing, um, which I think is 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 an interesting thing. It's it's written for children, and yet at the same time, it it has some really interesting elements to it. But anyway, Julia, what do you think? I agree, and I guess that's the oh hi, Marshall. Nice to have you join us. Um, I think I guess you answered my question. That's the sign of a classic is when references have been integrated into our culture and everybody knows what you're talking about when you say jabberwocky or you know beautiful soup and so I guess that's the sign. Um I enjoyed reading the book. I had to read it in college. And so it's been well a few years, but it was nice reading it again and all the references to her shrinking, and it was just, you're right, Lana, it didn't make a lot of sense, but it just, I don't know, somehow it worked. Marshall, do you have any thoughts on the book, Alice in Wonderland? Yeah, I I actually have never read the book. Um, I think I, what I remember from it are references to, like, the Disney movies, or other things. I like the nonsense part. Um, I guess I, I, I'm kind of getting tired of things having to make sense all the time, be logically consistent. Uh, or maybe it's because I've 
like quantum mechanics, which is about as strange as the things that happened to Alice. Um, so, I, I enjoyed it very much. Well, that's great, because um, all three of us have had read the book at some point or other in our lives, and, and it's interesting to hear you say that you'd never read the book before, um, but you you probably did recognize we were just talking about, you know, the cultural references having to do with this book, and I was just saying that my father, who, well, he was an English teacher, but he was also you know, well-read and, and all that. And he, he was a bit of a, a clown, but he would he would uh, make lunch and he would serve soup and he would say, beautiful soup, beautiful soup. And, you know, and, you know, my friends and I would look at him and, and sort of go, what? You know, and... and uh, of course, we knew where it was from, but, I mean, you know, people don't usually do things like that, except my father did. You know, he was he was an unusual guy. No, that's the one reference I didn't recognize. I mean, I think we had to read Jabberwocky in high school, and I've heard of Tweedledum and Tweedledee and, you know, the Mad Hatter and all of that stuff. But I'd never heard of, you know, the mock mock turtle at all. I wasn't familiar with the beautiful soup illusion either. Like I say, I, all I read were the condensed versions. So I haven't really read the book. I've read versions, but not the book. I mean, until yesterday. Well, one nice thing was that it was fairly short. I mean, really short for us. I mean, it was, it was what, three hours? I didn't read the uh, Through the Looking Glass. I, I stopped it at Alice in Wonderland, but I, I'll probably go and read through the Looking Glass. But it was uh, it was good. I mean, it, it was nice to have such a nice short book. Because I have been well, never mind what I've been reading. I've always I'm always reading stuff that isn't for the book clubs. So, <laughs> oh dear, uh, I'm rereading the the James Harriet books. But anyway, never mind. But, uh, um, so, yeah, uh, uh, it's, I just, I just enjoyed reading it because it was, was so wacky. I mean, it was, it really was wacky. Um, and it was just, um, you know, surrealistic. It, it really was. And, and although it was fantasy and, um. I think that may be one of the reasons why I kind of liked it, even having read it before. I mean, I've, I read it as part of a fantasy exploration and thought to myself, boy, you know, this is fantasy too, but it's not the kind of fantasy that we're accustomed to reading. It's not, you know, there's no, well, there is a heroine, but... Um, you know, there's no quest, really. There's no, um, there are no elves, no dwarves, no magic, really. Um, unless you consider magic to be 
all of the strange things that happen, the talking animals and all that. But it's not really magic in the sense that we think of magic, where someone is actually manipulating things. Alice doesn't really manipulate things. She experiences them, but she really doesn't cause them. And I think there's a difference there. So, um, but I, as I say, I really liked it. Yeah, it was a, a different type of fantasy than the traditional. And maybe that's one of the reasons why it's a classic, because it's it's a bit offbeat, but then you have the other classics, which aren't, and I'm not quite sure. I wonder if it isn't partly a classic, because the intellectuals appreciated the nonsense of it. But it was so extremely nonsense, and they probably have spent generations coming up with symbologies and trying to figure out what this or that signified. I noticed there was some, there was a little bit of underlying cruelty for a children's book, uh, with the you know who eats who, what eats what. You know when she's talking to the bird about the cats and then the dogs, and she makes that mistake, and then. There are a couple of references about devouring each other, and here she is, quite little in the process. And the poor mock turtle, he exists so they can have mock turtle soup, and no wonder he's sad. Um, so uh, it's, it's, there is just a thread, a very small thread, considering that it is kind of, you think of it as fluff and nonsense, but there is, and the baby turning into a pig and her thinking, well, maybe some people would be better off turning into pigs, which is a pretty adult thought, but kind of, da- and there, the woman shaking the baby and, and thro- everybody throwing, the violence of throwing things around at each other, and, and uh, I, I thought there was a, a little bit of I'm glad I read the book, but I can't say I enjoyed it. Well, but if you've ever watched Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, I've never read that book or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, all I've seen is the movie, but the things that happen to the bad little boys and girls in that movie aren't exactly, um, you know, a picnic. Well, that's true, and... You know, you do have um, in the in the, the C.S. Lewis books, for instance, you have uh, the the bad little boys uh, at one point being turned into pigs. I don't know if anybody remembers that. It was it, it's in the second book. Um, it's in the uh, uh, Prince Caspian, but it's a very funny scene and. Uh, it it, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, people were a lot more overtly violent back then. Um, you know, and they talked about chopping off people's heads and all that kind of stuff. And you know, if you go back and you read the really old fairy tales, you know, the Grimm and the and the uh, Andrew Lang and all that. I mean, you know, you have these these horrible things happening to people. Um, you know, people being devoured by various monsters and all that kind of stuff. And, and um, you know, there's been such a, a movement in children's literature, at least, to get away from violence and so forth. Um, I don't think it's worked, though, because um, we're still writing books with violence, even for kids, so, um, 
and it's it's sort of more realistic in a certain sense because the world is a violent place. I think of the C.S. Lewis books as applying appealing to a a somewhat older. I mean, Alice in Wonderland. She's maybe eight. I think six, probably a little too young, but ten is almost too old. Uh, she, um, but the the people in in the uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we we never know their ages, but we gather that they're maybe ten, twelve, maybe Edmund's eight. Um, maybe 14 for the older boy and the girl. It's hard to say. But it, and, and the, the cruelty in that, and even Willy Wonka had a message to it. Um, it was a kind of brutal message, but it was, it was the bad guys getting theirs in many cases, even the boys being turned into pigs, uh, were things that, I remember a story my friend told me they got a copy of Grimm's Fairy Tales for, for her, husband to read to her daughter and he was reading Cinderella and he got to a part of the book and he kind of coughed and stumbled and dropped the book and then put himself together and apparently there was a section where the stepsister when they're trying on the the uh, the uh, slipper cuts off the toes of one of her daughters so that her foot will fit in the slipper and you kind of like okay he didn't quite know how to how to get away from that well, if it is in there, that that really shows the character of the of the the wicked stepsister. I mean that, you know, that is really. Uh, I mean, it's gross. It, it, you know, on the surface of it, yeah, it's gross. But it really, really shows her character. In other words, she'd do anything to um, marry the prince. You know, she really, she really wants to marry the prince and. You know, what does that say about morality? No, it was a stepmother who cut cut off one of her daughter's toes to get into the... It was a stepmother's ambition for her daughter, which is uh, even more cruel in a way, to cut off her toes so that her foot... to try to get her foot to fit in the slipper. Gross. <laughs> what else can I say except gross? Um, I mean, I, I realize that's not very expressive. It's not very... Um, it's not going to sound very good on the on the recording, but that's the only response I have. Um, but then you know we've got other people writing fiction about people that that uh, have a baby just so their their elder daughter will have uh, organ replacement um, parts. And, you know, and nobody says anything about that either. So, uh, and and I have determined that I am never, ever reading anything else by that author ever again. I mean, I just, I'm sorry, but uh, that just, that whole idea is so repugnant to me. I just cannot conceive of parents actually doing something like that. I mean, that is so... I mean, it's so awful. The book you read might have been fiction, but I believe that really happened. Yeah, I think so, too. I think they had one daughter with a disease, so they had another one, so the second one could donate blood marrow to the first or something like that. 
Yeah. Oh, uh, what's her name? Picolt or whatever. Um, I don't know if she based it on a true story or what, but uh, I just, oh, just the thought makes me sick. At least if it's fiction, you can sort of have a little bit of a barrier and say, okay, well, this would never happen, but well, we have gone way beyond that as a society, which is extremely depressing, but maybe we should go back to happy fantasy land or, well, not so happy fantasy land. Well, I hate to bring up something from another genre, but um, in the Larry Nivens universe, there was a short story about a guy that he was running away from the law because he'd been convicted of a traffic ticket. I think it was a traffic ticket. And what they did is if you committed a crime, they just took your organs, you know, euthanized you and took your organs and put them in or- an organ bank. Yeah, that's uh, that's true. I've, in fact, I'm proofing a uh, a science fiction book that's just like that. Um, what is it? Star Child or whatever. I'm proofing it for Bookshare. Um, yeah, that people are punished by having their organs taken away for for the organ bank, and that's just ugh, yuck. Ay ay ay. I, I, I. Uh, I think we need something light um, this uh, this next month. Something, something, um, something fantasy, but maybe not as dark. What you think? Well, actually, this wasn't all that dark. I, I stuck my foot in my mouth and made it dark <laughs> and the hobbit wasn't dark and rico and time wasn't dark we just had took a dark turn in our conversation well that's true so um uh what do you folks want to do next time i was looking up um suggestions on the internet and um let's see i came up with well okay i yes if you count google as being me or goodreads website rather um, has this whole list of fantasy classics, and I was going through them, and the list that I had picked was Princess Bride, um, Oversea Under Stone, which is the first of the d- Darkness Rising sequence by Susan Cooper. Um, of course, C.S. Lewis with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And... Oh, shoot, I had another one, but I forgot. Well, there's always The Wizard of Oz, too. Oh, yeah, that one was on there, too. Well, uh, Oversea Under Stone is good. Um, I read that whole series back, I don't know, last spring or so. I'd have to reread the first one just so I remembered what happened. But um, I liked it. It's very good. Um, you know, I, I, I enjoyed it. Um and then what was it I saw on the on the bar list? Something about Green No. And I think the first one in the series is the house at Green No or something. Um, but that's a good set of suggestions. What uh, what's everybody's pleasure? I think I like the Overstone Undersea. Yeah, it's been a long time, and that was a pretty good series. 
And that one is on Bard and Bookshare, which will make people happy. All right. Is that what everybody wants? I, I mean, here I am taking over. I don't mean to do that, Julia. But um, that's a great suggestion. Um, I don't mind reading Oversea Under Stone or Under... Yeah, Oversea Under Stone. Is that it, or is it Undersea Over Stone? No. No, which is it? We'll have to do a bard search for Susan Cooper and see what comes up. I think it's Oversea Under Stone. I think you're right. Um, anyway, that sounds good to me. Let's do it. And you're okay with that, Marshall? Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, I want light reading. And I, I hope it's not horribly long. The uh, Sci-Fi Book Club got into a two-volume series that's like something like almost 80 hours total. I've read it already, but it's kind of drag. It's dragging me down. Talk about drag me down. I did read Memory of Light, so I have finished finally the <laughs> the Wheel of Time series, and it turned out pretty well. Uh, I was sorry about what happened to Egwene, but it was very much in her her place to do what she did, and most of the people came out in pretty good shape. And uh, the resolution was quite interesting. Uh, there was a lot of battle. Um, I'm not recommending it for the group because if you haven't read all of the um, other stories before, before it, you won't know it. But for those who've read it, it's worth a read. It's a long haul. And one thing about the battle scenes, you switch back and forth from, from a battle scene to, a, to a, something happening that's not battle or that's associated with it but not in the middle of it. So it isn't just one long horrendous battle. It's, it's 44 hours or something is pretty outrageous. But if you've gone that far into the Wheel of Time series and we've spoken about that series quite a bit on this group is why I mention it, it's, it's worth finishing up. It's, it's worth the read. Yeah, I wonder if there are cliff notes for it just to keep the characters straight. Well, anyway, I'll go look up Susan Cooper, Oversea, Understone, Understone, Oversea, Oversea, Understone, whatever, uh, while I'm watching a TV reality series about exploding toasters and blue-eyed dogs that attack animals and, um, oh, what are those flying saucer buffs have about oh cattle mutilations and uh, other fun stuff. No wonder you want light reading. Really? <laughs> oh dear. Well, have fun with the wacky Malmutes. Aren't they the ones? Aren't they the dogs with the blue eyes? I think they're the ones with the blue eyes. Uh, Malmutes, uh, I think, uh, do have blue eyes, but that's wild. That is totally wacky. Uh, all right, I'm going to go back to reading my James Harriet books. I needed something totally out of the mystery genre and totally out of science fiction and fantasy, and I'm, I'm enjoying myself thoroughly. <laughs> I have to say, because um, I, I uh, actually... 
I finished a, a wonderful science fiction book, which um, I could recommend to anyone who likes that sort of thing. If you haven't read it, you should. It's called Seventh Sigma, and it's very good, and it's by Stephen Gould, and um, it's, a, it's a very good read, but it's science fiction. It's not fantasy. So, with that, I will say that I will stop the recording. I will go tomorrow morning, and I will look up Susan Cooper and find out exactly what the title is and put it in the blurb, and um, we'll see everybody next month. Uh, let me see. I've got to look it up on the calendar. Hold on. Well, this this is one of those reality TV, TV series where they're supposedly scientifically explaining them. And I actually did see a scientific explanation for the cattle mutilations. So I want to compare notes. And things like exploding toasters and couches that catch fire by themselves. and uh, These blue-eyed creatures are down in Texas somewhere. So I'm really curious to see what it is. Plus, it's about the only thing on TV that's in any way slightly interesting tonight. I want to defend Malamutes. Um, they are not... Oh, they're, they're, I mean, they, they do hunt. I mean, they'll, you turn a gopher loose in the yard, and most people had Siberian huskies, and no rodent got in their yard and got out in one piece. But uh, they, they're, they're good dogs. They're not, uh, these dogs are probably not Malamutes. Uh, so let's, let's uh, do a little defense of the, of the Malamute. The next meeting of the fantasy discussion group will be on. October 13th, 2013, at 8 o'clock in the evening Eastern Time. And we will be discussing Oversea Understone by Susan Cooper.